following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Proverbs. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Proverbs 3, 1 through 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of your life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Well, welcome again to Sacred City. If you're just joining us, my name is Justin and I'm one of the pastors here. And what we are about to do now is take an extended look at the most famous passage in the entire book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 3. So if you've got your Bible, open it up to Proverbs chapter 3. And I'm trying to do that myself right now. And uh, I guess kind of without much thought, you might be thinking, well... Who cares, right? Who, who cares about this book of Proverbs and the most famous passage? Um, isn't it just some old dead guy's opinion? Why should anybody care what this guy has to say? Let me give you uh, two reasons why we should probably pay attention this morning. First, the Bible isn't just another book. In the history of human civilization, it is the book. Did you know that the Bible is the best-selling book? In human history, the Guinness Book of World Records estimates that more than 5 billion copies have been printed. That's a B, billion with a B, all right? The Quran has about 300 million, and it's in the second place spot. So huge gap. The Bible is bought so often that Amazon and the New York Times just decided not to include it in their best-selling list because it would literally never leave year after year. All right, number one again, the Bible. All right, who gets the award for that one? All right, now that should show us something. Good books come and go. But how many books remain bestsellers forever? Just one. And that should cause us to ask why. What's different about this book? Well, there's a lot that's different about this book, but one thing is what it claims about itself. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, a famous scripture says this about itself. All scripture, it's all of God's word, the Bible, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, for training in good living, for training in God obedience. We want to learn how to live this God-centered good life. Well, that's what scripture is there for, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here, the Bible claims to be God-breathed. That means 
divinely inspired, inspired by God, that God through the Holy Spirit inspired men to write down his words so that we could know him, we could know his way of salvation, and we could know how to live a good life. Now, just because it says it's God-breathed doesn't mean it's true. Other books claim to be inspired by a God as well. But here's what I want us to see. There's no other book in human history that has helped more people find the path to the good life. People come to know God through this book. They find that relationship deep and meaningful. And people come to understand basic reality that makes sense of their experiences. That means the Bible helps them make sense of what they're experiencing in their daily life. And this has been going on for thousands of years. I mean, did you hear the claims made by this chapter in Proverbs? We read together this morning, this chapter claims that if you listen to it and you apply it to your life, here's the claims from this chapter, it will add years to your life and peace with it. Now, just stop for a second, okay? There's a, pop, a lot of guys are out there listening right now to the Joe Rogan podcast, and it's, you know, it's helping men, whatever, find themselves again or something. But here's one of the things that are talking. Everybody's buying a sauna these days. Everybody. Now, why? Because studies show that if you get in a sauna, it'll add five years to your life. Five years to my life, I'm buying a sauna. Everybody's buying saunas, right? Listen, these script, this is the Bible here is saying, here's, you want to add, add years to your life? Find wisdom. Obey God. Now, let me keep reading from this, from this chapter. What else does it say? It claims to bring favor and good success in the sight of God and man to the one who finds and reads this book and obeys it. It promises to make straight your path. It promises to heal your flesh. It promises to bring refreshment to your bones. And this isn't some new self-help book that hasn't been tested or tried. This isn't pop psychology that would be disproven in a few years as new research comes out. This is wisdom that has been given to us by God, passed down through generations and tried and tested by literally billions of people. It's wisdom that works. So my hope would be that you would at least listen this morning with an open mind. You would at least approach this and say, Maybe there's something I need to understand here. Maybe there's something I need to listen to here. And that's my prayer this morning, that you at least listen with open ears and open heart. Now, let me pray, and we'll get into it this morning. Father God, I thank you for all the work that has went into this gathering here this morning. I thank you for the volunteers that arrived early, that set up, that practice that get our kids' ministry ready to go. I thank you for the prayer that's been put in. I thank you for um, all of the hours that have gone into preparing um, this building and this experience and the kids' area um, so that people could hear your gospel, people could hear your words this morning. We thank you for that. And Father, we know that all of our labor would be in vain if you don't show up. And so we ask that you would grace us with your presence here this morning, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would use me, a fool, a sinner, 
a man who has problems and issues just like everybody else in this room, that you would speak through me and that your voice would be heard through my voice this morning. Would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? Would it be all of you and none of me this morning, Father? For your glory and our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's an iconic American poem by Robert Frost called The Road Not Taken. And it goes like this. Put it up there. Let me read it. Two roads. We've probably heard a part of it. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and I looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Now, what this poem is trying to get across is that many of our decisions in life are between two choices that seem almost equal. He, the author there, the poet, is looking at a decision in front of him. He's in a wood. It's a yellow wood. It's in fall time. He's looking, and the two paths look very similar. Which path should I take? Path to the right or the path to the left? Both look promising. Now listen, these are the tough decisions in life. Now, if you look down one path on the left and you see dead bodies, right, and destruction and chaos, and then you look down the other and you see rainbows and unicorns, right, you should probably take the one on the right, right? Obvious choice. It's not hard, right? Here we go. Should I date the demon-worshiping axe murderer or the kind and compassionate Christian? You stayed up late at night thinking about that one? That one hard? Well, that's obvious. But what if you have two kind and compassionate Christians interested in you? What if you have two people that respond to the dating app? They both look pretty similar. What do you do now? See, how do you make that choice? People don't just walk up, right, with most of the time, axe murder written on their face. Oh, it's getting more, more common, I guess, these days. <laughs> right? Frost's poem here, see, this is, Frost's poem is, is drawing our attention to the subtle differences between two paths that can literally make all the difference. And this is where we need wisdom. When we have two, we have a choice to make between two things, but both look pretty promising. Both look pretty good. 
Frost's poem is drawing attention to how subtle the differences are between many of life's choices. See, both of these paths look pretty good. There seems to be only a slight difference between them. One in the poem, it says, seems to be a little more grassy. What does that mean? It's a little less travel, traveled. It hasn't been worn down as much. More people are going to the left than to the right. And that's the only difference that he sees. And he says, I'm going to make my decision based on that. And I'm going to take that path. Now, there's two things that I want us to see from Frost's poem. The first, I think, is an example of wisdom. A wise person has the ability to notice subtle differences. They, see, they literally see more things than the average person. Where some would only see five clues, the wise person sees 20. In the poem, one path is just a little overgrown in comparison to the other. Now, when you're thinking about Dating someone, there's some other clues that you should be looking at, right? Is the, does, does he have a job? That, that, that one, that's a clue, right? What about this? Here's a clue. How has God made me? How, how am I shaped? What's my personality? What's my Enneagram type? How has God shaped me? How has God shaped him or her? And how would our personalities work together? The wise person actually does that beforehand. They don't just get together and say, how can we make it work? And it's literally whole life trying to, you know, force like a square peg through a round hole, right? No, no, no. The wise person says, hmm, how would we work together? What's his goals in life? What's my goals in life? Right? The other thing I want us to see is the way the poem ends. He says, I chose the path less traveled, and it has made all the difference. The path of wisdom is the path less traveled. Very few people really grow to be wise. But those who do, when they look back on their life, they know choosing the path of wisdom has made all the difference. No one ever regrets the path of wisdom. If you can get to the end of your life and you can look back and you can see a home that was still together, a marriage that was still together after 30, 40, 50 years, you know you took the path of wisdom. There was many opportunities to get off that path. There was many opportunities to chase somebody down who's more interesting, who promised something different. And very few people get to the end of their life after having an affair or ruining a business or ruining their life and go, man, that was a really wise decision. I'm really glad I did that. No, but the wise on their deathbed can look back and go, man, I chose the path of wisdom and it's made all the difference. My kids are worshiping God. My kids are raising their kids to worship God. No one ever regrets walking the path of wisdom. But if that's true, if wisdom promises all of this blessing, if it promises all this blessing, and it really is kind of what I said last week, the secret sauce of the good life, 
It's the difference maker between wasting your life and living a God-centered good life. Why don't more people take it? Why does it still remain the path, the path, the path less traveled? Well, that's what this sermon today is all about. That's really what the book of Proverbs is all about. He, Solomon is constantly, and the other writers are constantly drawing people's attention back to this path, right? People walk the path for a little while, and then they veer off, and Solomon's like, whoa, whoa, back over here. That's what he's doing for us this morning. See, most people, we want the benefits of wisdom. We really do want to grow wise, but what we do is we reject the only path to wisdom. We want wisdom. We want the fruit of wisdom, but we reject how to get it. We reject the path to wisdom. Now, here it is. We're going to love this this morning. Wisdom comes through discipline. Ooh. Reproof. Reproof. We don't use that word. It means really to be corrected, to be challenged, to have somebody, when a child is running in the street, right? They're running in the street. You don't just go, Johnny, oh, Johnny, right? What do you do? You yank their arm out of socket, right? That's what you do. What? You grab, mom, sorry, I didn't let you die. (laughs) Right? Now, that's what wisdom does. Wisdom gets in our way. Wisdom yanks us off the path. We're going off the path of wisdom. Wisdom yanks us back. It comes through discipline, reproof, and correction. Now, how many of us, uh, like the yank, right? How many of us like to be disciplined, reproved, or corrected? This is one of the common themes of our culture right now. We do not want to be corrected. Listen, we want to be accepted. We want to be accepted as we are, not challenged or disciplined. We don't want anyone to go, oh, I know who you are. You are, I'm not going to say it. (laughs) I know who you are, and I'm not going to let you stay there. Right? Like, you're foolish. Right? You're broken. You're making bad decisions. I can't just jump in the car with you, and you take us both off the cliff. Like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that. Right? Because I love you. I want you to be wise and I want you to make wise decisions. But this ethos in our culture right now is we want to accept everyone. We don't want to challenge and go, I don't think that's actually good for you. I don't think that's wise. I don't think that's right. And and what this has done, because we were swimming in this cultural waters, is Now, anytime someone brings correction to us, you know what we do? We feel judged. We feel rejected. We feel automatically that this person is saying, there's something wrong with you and not something wrong with me. Even though that's, no, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. There's something wrong with all of us. We feel judged. We feel 
rejected, and, and, and could I even say we despise being corrected, reproved, or disciplined? Look what verses 11 and 12 say in chapter 3. My son or daughter, do not despise. That is an emotional word. That is a guttural word, right? That's not like, don't just ignore. Don't despise it. Now, what is it about us that despises being corrected? Well, we're going to get to that in a moment. Keep reading. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Look at this. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Think about that. Many of us crave approval. We want people to accept us and love us for who we are. But if someone says, hey man, I don't think you handled that well. You didn't follow through on what you said you would do. You said you're going to be here at this time. You showed up here. You did a poor job at that. <gasps> How dare you? We don't feel loved. Employers in our society today are pulling their hair out because they don't know how to bring constructive criticism to employees. In the beginning, people always knew, you're showing up at this job as an idiot. We're going to make you worth what we're paying you, right? You're going to work yourself into this. We're going to train you as you go, and you're going to grow into this. Now, people are getting into, the, into an entry-level job, and they're, they're, they're wanting their employer just to encourage, encourage, and build up, and build up, and give them six weeks of vacation right away. And employers are like, we, no, wait, what? You're actually... Not a very good employee right now. College didn't train you for what I'm trying to train you to do, right? You need some correction here. You need discipline here. Isn't it weird? Somebody who's actually trying to make us better, they're trying to make us into a better employee or a better father or a better son, and they bring some correction to us, and we, what are you trying to do to me? Jerk. Oh, I got a mean boss. Or I got this. I got that. And the boss is going, oh, my goodness. I'm trying to help you. Proverbs teaches us this strange paradox. Here it is. That correction and discipline. Listen, listen. Correction and discipline come to those who are loved by God. Proverbs teaches the parent that doesn't discipline their child doesn't love their child. The parent that just wants to be best friends and we're just going to see how this thing comes. I'm just going to love them and give them what they want. We'll see how this turns out. It will turn out poorly. We discipline those we love. Listen to this. This is, in, this is so paradoxical in our culture because God loves us, because God delights in us, he desires for us to grow up into wisdom and therefore he is going to discipline us. 
Now, this might be the most important thing I say all morning. When you read this chapter, if you don't understand verses 11 and 12, you won't understand the entire chapter. That's why I started with them. If you take out 11 and 12, what you get from the chapter is what's called a prosperity gospel. Follow God, obey God, and everything in your life is going to get better. Now, the truth of the matter is, follow God, obey God, and everything will kind of get better, but it, will get, it won't get any easier. It's going to get better. You're going to be made into the image of Jesus, his son. You're going to be made more righteous. You're going to be made more like Christ, but it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be fun and it's going to be painful a lot of the time. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13, the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. What's so hard about the way of life and what I'll say is the way of wisdom? It feels, like a, whole, it feels a whole lot like the way of discipline and correction. Listen, I stood up here last week and I said, that when I looked back on my 40th birthday, I looked back over the last decade of my life and I was grateful for God, to God and I, I wasn't full of regret or remorse and that I could honestly say that I had done what God had asked me to do and I had grown in wisdom by the grace of God. But also, listen, when I survey the last decade, there was, I, had, <laughs> I had more conflict I had more conflict in my life over the past decade than any other time in my life. Conflict. Conflict with God. It was as if God was saying, I know who you are. We've heard this saying, he loves us enough, he accepts us where we are, but he doesn't let us stay where we are. He's like, that's fine for a 30-year-old. You're on your way to Fort. Let's grow up in this area. So God came after me. I had conflict with God. He refused to let me stay the same way. He loved me enough to bring what Proverbs says, the rod of discipline. Proverbs teaches the rod of dis discipline drives foolishness far from the child. God, in a fatherly way, brought the rod of discipline into my life over the past decade and beat some of that foolishness out of me, praise the Lord. This brought me into conflict with myself. How many of you guys have been there yet? Conflict with yourself. I am not the man I want to be. There's things about my character and my behavior and my attitude and my emotions that I can't stand. And of course, I also had a lot of conflict with other people. My wife, my kids, my friends, my missional community family, my extended family, conflict, conflict, conflict. And all of that conflict with God, with myself, and with others, listen, was the Lord's discipline. 
The question I want to ask you, are you open to that? We all want to grow in wisdom. We, we want the fruit of wisdom. But if we aren't willing to be challenged and corrected, to be reproved, if we aren't willing to almost constantly be in conflict, we will never grow wise. Isn't it amazing how Jesus was called the Prince of Peace, yet you read the Bible and all you see is conflict? Just people wanting to kill him, people wanting to throw him off cliffs, demons, he's in conflict with demons, he's in conflict with religious leaders, he's in conflict with his own disciples. The Prince of Peace, always in conflict. Now, listen. Proverbs 3 Five and six. Let's read it. We all know it. This is probably the third Bible verse I ever memorized in my life. Didn't know the context at all. But boy, it sounded good. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Listen, those verses are not just coffee cup verses. They are for people in the heat of conflict. I don't know what to do here. So I'm going to tr trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding. And I'm going to have to acknowledge him. God, I don't know what to do here. Give me direction. Help me. Lead me. You might be saying, why in the world... Do we need conflict? If you're a nine, that's definitely what you're saying. <laughs> conflict? No. You love it. You know it. If there wasn't conflict, we wouldn't need you. You're the nines. You bring in peace to everybody. We love you. Listen, look at verse seven. Here's the problem. Verse seven. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 12.15 kind of echoes this and says this. Proverbs 12.15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. We're having a lot of, we're in the heat of discipline right now at our home. We've got my youngest, she's uh, four and she's uh, the boss baby. Okay, let's just say that. She's a little bit of a bully right now. My wife's grandmother passed away this week and we took an emergency trip down to Arkansas and we, you know, eight and a half hour drive with the kids and then we get to the house and then we've got one bedroom that we're all kind of staying in. And my daughter ruined our life, okay? <laughs> All night long, she was demon-possessed, okay? And I, I might be joking, but I'm probably not joking. I just looked at my wife in the morning and like, she's a monster. She refused to let anyone sleep in the whole room. Eventually, my wife, because she's a nine, she puts her in bed and my wife gets on the floor, my wife sleeps on the floor most of the night, and I laid in bed with my five-year-old being kicked in the ribs nonstop. 
And I just looked at her and was like, what is wrong with you? And she just woke up and she's like, what? And I'm just like, I can see it. There's foolishness deeply lodged there, but we're going to drive it out over these next couple years. I could see it. And what it, there, in her mind, she did nothing wrong. She did nothing wrong. This is her world and everybody else needs to change to fit, in, to fit into it. That's just how it is. Listen, the Bible teaches, this is how we come into the world. We come into the world wise in our own eyes. And we look at everybody else like, what is wrong with you? I can't believe you would do that. I can't believe you would say that. I can't believe you would. That's what it means to be wise in our eyes. Step one, we said last week on the path to wisdom is to realize that you're actually foolish. And why is that so important? It's so important because if you think you're wise, you'll never really seek wisdom. You've already got it. You just need everybody else to get on your game plan. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Human beings are hardwired for foolishness. Don't we trust our own thoughts, our own opinions? Many times those thoughts are actually crooked. They're short-sighted. How many times have we said to ourselves, just do it. No one's going to know. Just buy it. Figure it out later. Just date him. Just date her. We'll figure it out later. How many times have we trusted our own thoughts? And then down the road, how, the, how did I get here? You led yourself here. That's how you got there. We trust ourself too much. Wisdom is learning. Now, this is kind of anti-American here, I'm going to say. But wisdom is learning to put less trust in yourself, in your own opinions, and more trust in the Lord, in his word, and in his people that he's placed around us, our pastors, our leaders, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's go back to chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they'll be added to you. So Solomon here is telling his son, obey the Lord, it's going to go good for you. Obey the Lord, put your trust in the Lord. Obey him and it's going to go well. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. So then you will find favor and good success. He's saying the Lord wants to lead you into favor and success. Now, it might not be worldly success. It might be in actually righteousness and the good life and knowing God. Let's keep going. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean, here it is, on your own understanding. How do you know if you're leaning on your own understanding? Well, how much time do you spend 
listening to God? How much time do you spend reading God's word? How could I trust him if I don't know what he said? Do you read the word? Do you memorize the word? Why would I memorize it? Well, when you, when you need it at the meeting, when you need it during temptation, when you need it, what are you going to do if you don't have it memorized? How are you going to trust in the Lord in that moment if you don't have a word, a promise from God to lean on, to cling to? How can you trust the Lord more than yourself if you don't know his word? Now, here's where we get into some trouble. Many of us think we trust the Lord when in reality we just trust ourselves. Because we can read the Bible and we, there's a few things in the Bible that we agree with and we like. And so we're going to do those things. But then there's a few things in the Bible we don't like, we don't agree with, so we're going to push away. If that's how you treat the Bible, you're not trusting the Bible. You're not trusting the Lord. You're trusting in yourself. And it just so happens that your own opinions that you've soaked up from the culture are in line with God's word in a few areas. But in these areas where God is trying to correct you and bring discipline and bring reproof to you and go, actually, that's wrong thinking. We need to straighten that out. Actually, you love something that I don't love, and we need to challenge that. That's the Lord's discipline, and that's how you know if you're actually trusting him, that if he says something in his word, you can submit to it. You can say, I am wrong here. I don't understand this, but I'm going to change what I love or change what I think to fit God's word and not my own perceptions. That's what it means to trust the Lord. Can his word get in your way and change what you think about something? Can his word step in and bring reproof and bring discipline and bring correction to you? If it can't, then you do not trust the Lord. You trust yourself. And a fool, his way is always right in his own eyes. Now listen, so what, what can you do? Well, simple, have, are you reading God's word? We know this. Have you, I could say, how's that January reading plan going? Late June. Hey, start it back up. Start it back up. Get back on the rhythm. Start reading a proverb a day, maybe. Right? There's, right? There's 30 chapters in Proverbs. Maybe read one chapter a day, whatever the day is. Today's 23, 23rd, read Psalm 23 or Proverbs 23. Get back into God's word. If you don't know it, you can never trust it. Step one. But here's step two. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. How do you get out of being wise in your own eyes? How do we get out of foolishness? Obviously, we, we accept correction from God through his word, but here's the other one. We also correct, accept discipline and correction from God from God's people. Do you seek the advice of those in your missional community before making big decisions? 
Do you invite them in before taking a job, before buying, selling a house, before going into debt over something, before big decisions? If you do, do you listen to them in humility, accepting any challenge or reproof? Here's one thing. Or do you just present your plan and expect them to give their stamp of approval on it? And if they don't give their stamp of approval on it, you feel condemned, you feel judged, you feel that you weren't treated with grace. Listen, our culture right now is teaching us to trust your heart. Trust yourself. Trust the wisdom of your own eyes. And this goes completely contrary to thousands of years of biblical wisdom that's been passed down to us that has been tried and tested and found true, where it says, don't trust your own self. Don't trust the wisdom of your own eyes. Trust God's word and trust the collective wisdom of God's people that he puts in your life because we are all born foolish and we're bent towards foolishness. We're bent towards getting what we want in our own way. So, on the path to wisdom, if you want wisdom, if you want this good life that Proverbs is talking about it, he's saying it's going to come through discipline, and discipline comes through primarily conflict, coming into conflict with God through his word, coming into conflict with other people, specifically God's people, that he's going to bring correction to us. This path to wisdom is hard. God's going to contradict us. God is going to challenge our thoughts, our opinions, our motives, our decisions. God is going to put people into our life that are different from us. And those people bring different perspective and personalities into conflict with our own. And this is going to bring all kind of heat into our life, right? As iron sharpens iron. That's how God changes us as iron. We put that on shirts, right? Again, we put that on coffee cups. But have you seen this process as iron sharpens iron? Do you see the heat? Do you see the sparks flying? Do you see how dirty it is? Do you see how messy it is? This is the process of becoming a disciple of Jesus. Discipline is part of the root word there. It doesn't feel good in the moment, but if we stay on the path, it's the furnace that purifies the gold. It's the process that makes us wise. There's no other way to get wisdom. Now, how can any of us suffer through this? A, a life of conflict does not sound that appealing. Right? This isn't how we, we, we try to get people married. Right? Listen, you guys should get married. Why? Because you need to fight for the rest of your life. 
But that's, isn't that what marriage is? Marriage is like, all right, here it is. We're going to put you two in a ring. We're going to call it a covenant, and you're going to fight forever. But you're not going to, you two, fight forever, and we're going to watch, and God's going to do good stuff with it. Now, if you don't, I'm kind of being facetious, but that's a little bit what marriage is like. Two people in a ring fighting for each other's holiness, fighting for each other's joy, fighting for Christ-likeness in each other. Two people committed to going, that part of your character doesn't please the Lord and it doesn't please me and I'm gonna be vocal about it. (laughs) Right? That's what it is. The other person sees right through the armor and just goes, boop, every time. Oh, there it was again, just like your mom. Oh! 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 We all felt that one. Yep. Yep. Now, it's not, I know it doesn't sound that encouraging. What can give us the heart? What can give us the courage to stay the course and not turn off towards some easier path? Because that's what it always is, guys. It's always... This is discipline. My marriage isn't going well. It's going to take a lot of discipline to stay here. I'm going to have to work through some issues. I'm going to have to figure her out. I'm gonna have to figure me out. We might need counseling. We might need to invite missional community members into it. It's going to take a lot of work to stay this path. That is the path of wisdom. Stay the path. The path of foolishness says start over with somebody else. That's the path of foolishness. And you take the path of foolishness, it promises momentary relief, feels good for a moment. Somebody's into me again. Then they find out all the things that the other person found out. And now you're 10 years down the road, five years down the road, a year down the road, and you got to do the same process that you gave up on over here, or you hit reset and you find somebody new. That's the path of foolishness. So when the going gets tough, when the heat gets turned on, when the conflict is all around us, what's actually going to keep us on the path of wisdom? To put our head down and go, I need to be here. It's the furnace of God's love. He's burning some things off of me. I got to stay the path of discipline. What's going to keep us here? For me, the encouragement, the courage is found in four words in this chapter in Proverbs. The first two are the first two in this chapter and also repeated in verse 11. My son. My son. My son. Listen, I love my son so much. And the more I love him, the more I hate the fool inside of him. You know, the father who has the son who's an alcoholic loves the son fiercely and hates the alcoholic intensely because the alcoholic is ruining his son. The alcoholic in him, the fool in him is ruining him. Solomon here looking at his son saying, my son, my son. Listen, that shows us God isn't disciplining us because like we're not good in, somehow we're not good enough to be close to him. Too many of us think that God is looking at us like a coach does, looks at his kids during tryouts. Is this guy, is this, is this person good enough to make my team? 
Oh, look, look, look. Oh, 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 done. Not on my team. That's not how God's looking at you. God sees your failures. God sees your mistakes. But this is what's insane. He says, my son, my son, showing us, communicating to us, you're already in the family. You already belong to him. He's already chosen us. And now he wants to develop us into the character of his own beloved son, Jesus. That realization makes all the difference when you're going through a tough season. God has brought this into my life for my own good. God is doing something good in me through this. Hebrews 12 talks about this. No son enjoys the discipline when we're going through it. What is discipline? Discipline is literally your parents doing something to you that makes you cry for your own good. Right? No child is ever looking at dad going, dad, your deep care and love for me during this moment is just moving me. (laughs) Every child goes, you hate me. You're mean. What are you doing? It's in these moments we need to hear these words, my son, my son, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm doing this because you're my son. I don't discipline the neighbor's kids, right? They come over, I'd look at them, oh, these little hellions, get out of here. That kid needs a spanking, right? Whatever. I don't discipline the neighbor, I discipline my kids. Why? Because my love compels me to. And the other two words are in verse three. Let not steadfast love, that's hesed in the Hebrew, and faithfulness forsake you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Now it's kind of confusing the way it's written there. It's not talking about like you be, you have steadfast love, you be faithful. Steadfast love and faithfulness is God's love towards us. God's faithfulness to his own covenant, to his own word, to his own self. He's saying God's love came after you when you were a sinner, when you were a fool. And don't, don't forget that. Don't step away from that. His faithfulness towards you, a fool, don't forsake that. These are Old Testament code words for the gospel. It's talking about God's one-way love to undeserving sinners. He's saying, don't forget how loved you are. Don't forget how much God has done to save you and to make you his own. That God knows you all the way down. You can't hide anything from him. You can't hide your thoughts. You can't hide your feelings. You can't hide your actions from God. He knows how many foolish decisions you've done. He knows how often you fail to live up to his standard of holiness. He knows how you're not even that interested in him or his ways most of the time. But he doesn't stay aloof to you in your brokenness, in your sin. He doesn't push back and go, whenever they figure things out, I'm here. He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus who lived for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. Jesus ascended for you. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit for you so that you would never have to be alone again. He has done all of that work and he said he's going to finish the work that he started in you. 
Don't lose sight of that when things get difficult and conflict starts to arise. You're walking the path of wisdom. It's going to be difficult. And we'll be tempted to think, the reason I'm going through this is because God has forgotten me. God doesn't love me. God is mad at me. God is angry at you. No. God has already sent his son. God has already sent his spirit. And now what's, what's up for us? We, we need to stop. And we need to say, let that steadfast love and faithfulness forsake me. Father, I, I want to stop in this moment and just get a better perspective and just say, thank you for loving me. Thank you for pursuing me. Thank you for giving me grace. And even though I'm in the heat, I thank you for it because I know you're doing a good work in me and you're not going to stop until it's complete. What I want to do this morning is a little, something a little different. I, I'm going to, I want to give us a moment to think, a moment to pray. And so I'm going to ask the band, whoever's playing, the band to come up here. We're going to sing a different song. They're going to sing a song kind of for us. And uh, I want us to listen to it. I want to ask the Spirit to cause us to kind of step back on maybe the path of wisdom. Maybe just acknowledge I'm going through a difficult time right now, but Jesus is the one who will never fail me. Right? I want to take a moment and just let God be God and let God kind of speak to us. And then when the song's over, I'll come up and we'll do Lord's Prayer. I think I'm going to pray. Let me pray first. Father, I thank you for your word again. I thank you for Jesus coming, the one eternally wise one who died on the cross for fools like us to convince us once and for all that we can be both broken and loved. We can be both sinners and for forgiven. So I pray that we would rest in that this morning. I pray that people who've never put their faith in you would just do that. Would just say, Jesus, I trust you this morning. Jesus, I give you myself. Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins? Those who've been pushing away, maybe sons and daughters who've been pushing away from your one-way love, your discipline, and they've been saying, you're mean, you're cruel, you're harsh. I, I don't want to accept discipline. I don't want to accept reproof. Would they stop kicking and screaming and fighting you? And when they would, would they accept it? This is God making me more like Jesus. And he's doing it through the everyday means of correction through his word and correction through other people. Father, would you do this all for your glory and our good today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.